Today, we are taking a trip to the exotic Savage Land as we put Marvel's Merry Mutants, their most popular mutants, as we put the X-Men on the Rob Topsy table. We take a good long look at one of the meatiest, juiciest, most epic journeys the X-Men ever took. This really ignited their, their, their long-standing popularity. It's where it started right here. And there are so many historical achievements, so much relevancy here. We talk about the creators. We give you a full dose of all the sugar rush that's in store. There's a brush with greatness. We clean the slab off. We have unzipped the bag and we have uncovered the body of work. We are going to discover the X-Men on an all-new Rob Topsy on an all-new Robservations. Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of Robservations and a special edition of Robservations that we call the Rob Topsy. The, the Rob Topsy is where I put on the gloves and, and I, I get out, I get out the knife and, and we carve up, uh, in, in this case, the body of work. We study it. We examine it. We, uh, we, we, we try and give you historical contents, historical relevance. We, we give you the notables that, that occurred in this body of work. We give you creative pedigrees. We talk about being brushed with greatness in regards to the inker or the embellisher of the work. We're going we're gonna to talk about Sugar Rush. You want to hang on for that. Sugar Rush. And, and we discuss the legacy of this particular body of work in each and every Rob Topsy that we perform. And today's Rob Topsy is, is one that is so near and dear to my heart. It, it concerns, in, in my estimation, the greatest run in the history of comics. Yes, the, the top of all tops. And uh, th- this is not a controversial uh, stance to take in, in regards to this run either. It's closing around 40 years plus, uh, over 40 years old. And, and it, it is still like the creme de la creme, the, the blue ribbon, uh, the, 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 the gold standard of comic books. This is a uh, segment of the celebrated Chris Claremont, John Byrne, Terry Austin, X-Men run. It's one that doesn't get talked about as often uh, as, as so many others. It's been glossed over because it's not as uh, commonplace as, as the Dark Phoenix Saga or, or as Days of Future Past. But I'm telling you, we don't get to those excellent standards those, those giant you know uh, celebrated stories without this particular run and this run happened during the summer of 1978 we're going to call it x-men the savage lands and we're going to take you through this today uh w- with this incredible rob topsy <laughs> that i'm about to perform the the, the 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 you know the delicate nature of the rob topsy is to not get too many fluid spilled along the way to make it as clean as precise as possible i'm here with my with my uh with my tools like i said with my blades and i am i am ready and i'm going to tell you right now you haven't lived until you've been <clears throat> uh in a a room full of corpses i'm going to super date myself here twice uh just to, just to, to top this off given that this is now officially called the rob topsy is uh when i was in junior high a, a movie came out called coma and uh, it was a thriller. Uh, I believe it was written by Michael Crichton. Boy, I hope I'm right on that. That's going from memory. And uh, it was a medical thriller about, you know, 
you know, dead bodies, corpses, people being induced into comas and what was the cause of it. And it became a big theatrical release and it was a hit. And my, I, my parents would take me to these movies that I should not be seeing. (laughs) And by the way, I've mentioned this before, my Baptist uh, minister father would drive cities away to take my mom or to take me to see movies because he didn't want anybody from the congregation knowing that he was taking us to see PG or, or, or in my case, G-rated movies because I, I guess movies were bad. <clears throat> but so in that movie is in coma is the first time that I, as a kid, saw slabs and slabs of, of you know, corpses on, on medical tables. And and I recorded that in my in my head. It's like wow, and 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 watching them, you know, like do coroner stuff and and take apart a body and bodies in bags, unzipping them. Well, in 1985, in the summer of 1985, I spent it in uh, jumping jumping forward. That was the late 70s, summer of 85. I find myself <clears throat> in uh, Chicago for the summer as I'm helping my dad rehab after his second brain surgery. Lo and behold, a friend of mine uh, informed me that he was going to be living uh, right next to me and attending med school because he has uh, decided to follow that career path. His name was Mark. He's a genius. He's super brilliant. Everything he's ever done, he succeeded at. But he was uh, a few months into his tenure because I was there for three months. He came about a month later. And within the few weeks of me leaving and coming back home to California, uh, he said, Hey, do you want to come? see, you know, the, the corpses and how we study these. And I went to the medical center, him and his, him and his roommate, who was also, uh, he and his roommate, who was also uh, attending uh, the medical school and, and, and studying that they were both going to do their studies at the same time at night, as eerie as you could possibly imagine the lights go on, but it's not very bright. It's kind of dim, not, not super bright. They keep the, the, the lights low and they're on all these different metal tables were these zipped up corpses that were there for medical study. And he <laughs> said, you want to see, you want to see what we're doing tonight? And he unzips his body and proceeds to put a slice in it. And I'm just like, I'm in a movie. I'm in coma. I'm here. I'm with cadavers. I am with the cadavers. So having been a witness to a medical version of an autopsy, I now embark on a Rob topsy with all of you along for the ride. There is no more exciting work that I could share uh, than this body of work that we're going to discuss today. This this is an incredible story unfolded in the spring and the summer of 1978, which personally uh, I have always regarded as my absolute favorite year. And these about five or six issues are are, are a reason why. So John Byrne had come on the X Men and uh, just upped it. From the greatness that was already being performed by Dave Cockrum. Dave Cockrum was the illustrator who had come over from DC doing a fan favorite celebrated run on the Legion of Superheroes. He took over uh, the X Men with Giant Size X Men number one, relaunching the new team that we're all familiar with. Also, I need to pause. A couple of people, and I love to do this, I love to do this in show. Some of you people have, have said, you know, Rob, you're repeating stories. Well, of course I am. We're getting new listeners all the time, and I am so appreciative. But I have to be mindful of the new people who are just turning in, tuning in for this for, for the very first time. I watch a lot of uh, <clears throat> sports and news and sports entertainment shows, and I also listen to a lot of podcasts. And there is a certain amount of repeatability that's going to occur if you listen. 
So you're going to hear things over and over again, but you have to understand that there is always a first-time listener. And again, when I was starting out in comic books, the editor-in-chief of Marvel at the time, I, I was hired under the Jim Shooter regime, but it transferred over to Tom DeFalco. And when I was in person in the New York offices in Manhattan, in probably 1988, Tom DeFalco told me, Rob, when it comes to stories and storytelling in comics, we got to spoon feed the reader. We can't leave a whole lot up to their interpretation. You got to spoon feed them like they're babies. Like they're babies, like they're, like they're toddlers. And, and it wasn't an insult. It was basically, you got to cover all of, of, uh, of your, your, you know, all your bases in order that people, um, can as seamlessly as possible understand the information. This goes back to having the character use their powers in the first seven pages. That is what Marvel used to, uh, you know, subscribe to that you, you want to see Spider-Man swing in, shoot his web, web shooters, web somebody, maybe, you know, Crawl on a wall. Those are the highlights more so than his super strength. You want to see him embody what makes him a spider man. And again, I get it. I got it. So we are sometimes in the process of spoon feeding new listeners on this, on this, um, observation. So if I'm mentioning something about my dad going out of town to watch movies that I've told you before, hey, somebody's hearing that for the first time. And it's always going to be funny to me that my dad would drive out of two cities away to take me to see Star Wars, a harmless movie, but you know, people in the congregation, because everyone's so freaking judgy <laughs> in that, in that Baptist, you know, congregation. Oh, what did you see Paul coming out of the movie theater? Hey, I'm, I'm going to be honest. I know pastors now, I know pastors now who drive cities away so that their congregation won't see them. It's, it's nuts, but it is what it is. But in regards to my excitement over this era of the X-Men and then going through Dave Cockrum's uh, con- contributions. You may have heard this. I know you definitely you've heard this. It's been mentioned on several shows, but we're going to cover it because we're trying to put everything in context here. So Dave Cockrum, giant size X-Men number one, blows up, gives all new attention to the X-Men, generates some excitement. But guess what? The book's bi-monthly. That's going to come into play here in a minute. The book is bi-monthly. And he can't keep up the schedule to maintain the brilliant art that he does. I think the best two jobs Dave Cockrum did while he was on X-Men was giant size X-Men number one, brilliant, flawless, perfect. And then X-Men 100, you could tell he stepped up for that one. It was the old X-Men versus the new X-Men. Now, now there's a twist in that story, but there were, you know, drawings of old X-Men battling the new X-Men. And, and, and those pages are awesome. And I wish I owned at least one of them. They're, they're brilliant to me. They're the pinnacle of what he contributed. But uh, due to deadline issues, John Byrne was brought on because the, the book had been, you know, struggling in sales all over again after this initial excitement. John Byrne comes on. He seems fresh. He seems hungry. He seems invested. This uh, spring and summer is going to find us with X-Men 111, 112, 113, 114, 115. uh, These are definitely, you know, May, June, July, August, September comic books, but they are uh, maybe the strongest summer memories I've ever had in regards to a comic book. And there are absolute reasons that I'm going to get into in this Rob Topsy of, of this very under-celebrated segment. Now, X-Men fans, they know this. They love it. They dig it. And, and they're, they're with me the entire way going, yeah, push this. This is the stuff that gets lost. You know, Dark Phoenix, great storyline, epic. Absolutely. Days of Future Past, incredible in what it accomplished in only two episodes. But, but, but you don't get there without this. And this is, in my opinion, where the X-Men built the bridge that, that set them on the path to being the number one selling comic in comics for 12 years. I mean, that is a huge, tremendous feat, especially for an IP, an intellectual property, a title that had fallen on harder times prior to this. The story that really leads into what I'm going to discuss with you 
the Savage Lands. Uh, the precursor occurs in episodes, uh, issues, uh, X-Men 111, 112, and 113. And it found the return, and uh, I'll tell you, a restoration of who is, in my opinion, their greatest villain. It's not Apocalypse. It's not Mr. Sinister. It's Magneto. He's always been their greatest villain. Uh, he is the Yang to Professor X's Yang. And prior to this, prior to this particular storyline, Magneto, he was portrayed as powerful. He had been in some supervillain team-ups. He had even been back in the Cockrum issues in X-Men 104 to battle the X-Men. But there was a, a, a lack of a sinister edge that, that we go all the way into with his return. Uh, there's an, a villain named Mesmero who has uh, hypnotized the X-Men and they are all now circus freaks and Beast comes looking for them because they're all missing, but he stumbles upon the circus and he sees that Wolverine is a wild man. You know, Nightcrawler is like a, a scary monster in a cage. Uh, you know, Colossus is the strong man of the show. Uh, Storm, Jean Grey, all of them are portrayed as circus freaks. And in the process of him trying to break them out, he discovers that it was Mesmero who has hypnotic mutant powers had subdued them all and put them in the circus. So by the end, as he breaks them out, uh, they, the true villain behind the curtain, the guy who Mesmero was working for is revealed to be in a epic uh, full page splash that even this morning as I was preparing just to come on and do this, I was scrolling through uh, Facebook and somebody had put this splash page and said, for me, this guy, this person put this splash page is the one to beat. It's incomparable. And, and I'm like, of course it is. It is Magneto rising from the shadows, a full, uh, full page splash, three quarter body shot of him extending his arm across the table, fully coming into the light. And you see him as menacing and as uh, powerful as ever. <clears throat> what, uh, what follows is, uh, you know, the X-Men obviously battling him as he transports them to his Antarctic uh, his his volcano base, and again, this is something as a kid. You're going, wait, he has a base uh, underneath a a volcano, and and uh, that's where things get really crazy dire in in the uh, in in the <clears throat> episode 113 because in 112 they resist, they try and fight him, and he uh, beats them all. And, and there's an important page where he has got his arms spread and Wolverine, Cyclops, Banshee, Jean Grey, Storm, Colossus, Nightcrawler, they're all on the floor. And he says, I've won. I have faced my deadliest foes and I've beaten them all. And it's a great, you know, it's a great couple pages of them battling. And, and Jean Grey is about to power up to full level, but she's, uh, she's even um, like astonished at his, at his increased power levels. And the one thing that they tell you uh, <clears throat> In the course of the stories, that Magneto has become more powerful than he's ever become. He's like he's leveled up. He's he's uh, incredibly, incredibly stronger than they've ever encountered him before. And uh, he uh, is so powerful that he en encompasses them in a magnetic bubble that protects them all the way through the uh, you know the heart of of this fully active volcano he goes through the lava and beneath the surface and through in into his giant underground complex it's a complex it's like bigger than a base it's a complex and it says it it's uh, it draws its power directly from the earth's core the complex is totally self-sufficient and virtually impregnable a masterpiece a masterpiece of automated technology that would do tony stark 
or Tony Richards, Tony Reed Richards or Tony Stark proud. And uh, so upon landing, they all decide to try and spring into action and take him out. And as a fan, this is the kind of action that, that I always wanted to see the X-Men, uh, you know, each of them try and square off. Uh, Colossus obviously is the first to strike him and, and <laughs> Magneto's like, in case you're wondering, your armored form makes you the weakest X-Men by far. Because obviously, you know, Magneto controls uh, magnetic fields and metal is the weakest and the most susceptible. And he tosses, you know, Colossus against a wall and knocks him out. He uh, <clears throat> gives uh, Beast a static charge of magnetic, uh, of, of uh, a magnetic uh, kilovolt charge and uh, disrupts him. Storm tries to battle him, but he turns her lightning into a superconductor and levels here, levels her all over again. And, uh, and Nightcrawler is in the shadow saying Magneto is taking our best shots and striking us down. He tries to attack him uh, using a stealth uh, initiative. And what he does is he, he hurls, he uh, catches Nightcrawler and throws him into Colossus, dropping him. Uh, Banshee, uh, sound waves are trapped in a, in a, in a magnetic bubble that, that wrecks him, in essence, putting, pulling his, putting his power against himself. Cyclops hammers him and is, and is doing his best to, to throttle the magnetic shield that Magneto has erected. Uh, and Magneto acknowledges that Cyclops is really powerful and is really pushing him. But, uh, but while he's withstanding him, Magneto pulls a bunch of machinery, uh, from, from behind him and, 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 and knocks Cyclops out. Before Jean Grey can uh, power up, he takes, uh, you know, her life force out of her like a sponge, it says. Uh, he shapes uh, a magnetic bottle effect around her and sucks her life energy out. Wolverine is the last to tackle him again with his adamantium. He tells him how susceptible he is. And at the end of that issue, they wake up in the care of a robotic, a robotic nanny named, wait for it, Nanny. He says, everyone, this is Nanny. She is a creepy ass uh, John Byrne robot. And John Byrne had a real way with drawing some of the sleekest, most original robotic designs during this time. They were really ahead of their time, um, different than anything anyone else was doing. Some slight anime, uh, you know, manga influence there, but truly original. He had done a robot character that had kind of put him on the map over at Charlton Comics called Raj 2000 or Raj 3000, forgive me. Uh, we'll just call him Raj. And uh, this nanny embodies a lot of that design. But the last page of this issue, and this is really important, is uh, <clears throat> one by one, the X-Men try. One by one, they discover they can't. Their minds are as clear as ever, but somewhere along the line, their neural circuits are scrambled. Their moves are randomly un uncoordinated. The words they try to speak emerging as primal sounds. One by one, their faces twist into massive horror as they begin to realize what has been done to them. Because... Uh, Magneto uh, is 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 facing them as they are all encompassed in metallic chairs with restraints that go up to their midsections and have neck restraints. Their arms and legs are fully encased in metal restraints that like it, they're like metal beds, but they're sitting up. And and so it's as a fan, you're like, how are they going to get out of this? And Magneto says, this complex will be your home and prison. These chairs are your cells. The circuitry is locked into your central nervous system, but rather than uh, bore you with my words i want to i will demonstrate their power try to use your powers try to simply speak and therein find that this will be the last of tonight's surprises in the last panel he says an eye for an eye x-men 
you will not die, but you you soon will wish you had. You will suffer as I suffered. To be aware of who and what you are, to each possess your powers in their fullest measure, yet be as unable to use them as a six-month-old child. You will be helpless. If there is a hell, X-Men, surely it cannot be more terrible and tragic than this. The uh, that, that, that speech Magneto gives is chilling as a kid. You know, I, I couldn't hang on for another month. Wow. I was so like, wow, this is, this is, I mean, he, he has completely and totally beaten the X-Men, like completely beaten them down. And now like they're, they're, it's hopeless. It, it seems just absolutely hopeless. And what he's referring to, what he went through that, that eye for an eye is at one point, Magneto was de-aged uh, mentally, emotionally, just back to a child and was under the study of Maury McTaggart on her island. She's a longstanding kind of scientist. Uh, and 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 supporting character in the X-Men lore. And so when he finally reset his genetic code and regained adult form and became fully evil again, this is in the earliest stages of him reasserting himself. So what he's done is he's locked down his biggest nemesis and episode 113 opens and uh, Magneto is just crushing all manner of military uh, defeat as he uh, kind of looks to... Uh, assert his dominance on the world stage he's 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 uh doing raids on complexes in australia and new zealand and uh even the cameras that seek to uh seek to record his actions uh he he disrupts them looks to them and says i require privacy and then the reporters are like uh it's been hours since magneto has struck and many fires here are still raging out of control he says, in the past, supervillains such as Magneto have been successfully defeated by groups of superheroes. Unfortunately, the Fantastic Four and the champions have disbanded, and the Avengers are under, are under virtual house arrest by the government, which was true at this time. The X-Men who once defeated Magneto uh, when he attacked Cape Citadel, which is a reference all the way back to X-Men number one with Stan and Jack, seem to vanish off the face of the earth. This is John Cheever, BBC News, Australia. So... <clears throat> We then go to uh, Charles Xavier, who's in uh, Greece, and he is, uh, I'm sorry, in, in, the, in the Mediterranean, and he is uh, talking to his, his love, uh, Lalandra, and how he no longer has a telepathic rapport with them. So now we understand that Xavier's not coming to their rescue anytime soon, and the world doesn't know where they are. Then we open a nanny who is uh, scrubbing their hair, giving them baths from the neck up, feeding them. We see all the things that the robotic nanny, very, very cold and calculated, um, all the things that she puts them through. She greets them. Good morning, children. How are we feeling today? Uh, and then she leaves after feeding and, <clears throat> and brushing ha- the hair of like Beast and Wolverine. She says, I must be off, children. I will be bucket- back at lunchtime and I'll have, uh, I'll, be, I'll be back at lunchtime and this afternoon before your naps. I will read you a nice story. So what happens here is, and the key to getting them sprung is that Storm, Aurora, and we get a lot of her origin in this story, uh, from from being a thief in in Cairo uh, as a child, she removes her headdress that she is wearing as she is bound. And, and again, as a kid, you read this and you go, Wolverine still has his mask on while he's, you know, being sedated and restrained, but that's part of the cool things about comic books. She drops her headdress into her lap, right in front of her, into the metal plate that that serves as her lap, covering her up again because this all kind of goes everyone up. These these chairs go to everyone's midsections. Long story short, she has tools 
like long needles and and lock picks that are very thin and 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 and, and small that are part of the inset of her headset. <clears throat> she removes one with her tongue and then gets it on her teeth and proceeds for several pages to attempt to pick the lock that will release her. Well, again, we see how formidable she was uh, with picking locks as a child in Cairo through flashbacks. And uh, eventually Nanny comes back and puts the headdress back on. And uh, we just see that the uh, Magneto is now up in his asteroid base and asteroid m which this guy has clearly some serious financing and ability to have not only this complex underneath the lava uh, under uh, the lava of a volcano but have this asteroid okay well he decides it's time to go back and visit the x-men uh descends from the asteroid back into the volcano goes into the lava thinks that he's about to greet uh you know the subdued x-men and he sees nanny circling uncontrollably like her circuitry has been uh disrupted and as he studies her, he is hit in a great panel from all sides. Uh, Storm's electricity to the left. Cyclops beam from, from behind him. Banshee's sonic blast from his mouth throttle him in the chest. And Phoenix's power uh, hits him to the right. So he's getting hit four different ways. The game is afoot. The battle is on. The X-Men attack him. Now, this time, rather than working separately, they work together. Phoenix is also fully powered up and uh, goes out of her way to rip him. But this is, uh, you know, a great battle. Beast throws Nightcrawler in the air who, who bamps, teleports, and then appears right uh, above Magneto's head, snatching his uh, helmet, which protects him and shields him from psychic interference. Uh, Colossus wails on him. And uh, <clears throat> Magneto, about to be defeated uh, again, uh, or, or or about to be defeated by the X-Men in a complete turnaround of events, uh, motions to Colossus that the lava has broken through, that the battle that they're having has weakened the uh, foundation of the complex walls, and that lava is about to seep in, and they're going to be uh, burned under the lava. And then we get this great page where Colossus is hoping, holding Magneto, and... Uh, <clears throat> He basically says, hurry up, Cyclops, figure it out. Your entire, the lives of your entire team is going to depend on it. He, uh, Magneto then waves them away with his magnetic powers as they're distracted by the lava, and then it's on the X-Men to get the hell out of there. We see Magneto safely escape the lava uh, as, as the volcano explodes. He is above it, and he says, well, basically it's over. Even in death, X-Men, you thwart my plans. I am alive, but thanks to Colossus, it will be months before I am well enough to resume my work because he has taken on some serious injuries. He took quite the throttling. But as he flies away, we see Jean Grey and her phoenix bird explode out of the side of the mountain, and she and Beast emerge, and then she faints. And we are left as fans. As, 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 uh, as Beast tries to resuscitate her, he then collapses from the cold. He can't carry Jean any further. Her pulse is so weak from, you know, exploding the Phoenix Force and breaking them out. And in the last panel, B says, I'm stuck on foot in Antarctica with a dying girl in my arms in the middle of a blizzard. I don't feel so well. I'll be lucky to go another mile before I drop. And then he drops in the next panel. And then we pull out as he is unconscious. And it says to be continued. So these are the... uh these are the, the May and June issues. And then full-time summer hits. 
And I'm going to tell you, this particular issue, these next two issues, I got in the afternoon at the U-Totem, where I lived uh, off Euclid and, and Ball Road. And I stopped at the park in, in both instances because I was so swept up with the Savage Land episodes of these, because we're about to segue into three issues, which are real simple. The X-Men, Beast and uh, Jean, she wakes up fully powered, uh, uses her Phoenix Force to attract the attention of a helicopter, and they are whisked away to safety. We then join them four pages in as on the side of a mountain, the rocks continue to throttle them. We see a metallic fist. It's Colossus. He punches through and, uh, and they emerge. It's Colossus, Nightcrawler, Storm, Banshee, Cyclops, and Wolverine. And uh, they were basically told that they were in Antarctica by, by Magneto. And so they say, they're looking at something that we're not seeing yet. And they say, Scott, if this is Antarctica, uh, and, and, and Wolverine says, yeah, I know what you mean, Irish. How come we ain't freezing? And he said, Cyclops says, oh, this is Antarctica. All right, people. A part of it I thought I would never see again. And then there is a full page splash reveal. Pterodactyls flying in the sky above a beautiful jungle as they've emerged from this mountaintop. And he says, X-Men, welcome to the Savage Land. Pterodactyls, beautiful mountain scenery, jungles, uh, you know, trees, uh, thick with, with fo- foliage and f- foliage and, 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 and giant thick uh, moss and, 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 and berries and leaves, vines. Oh, it's so great. It's, it's amazing. I'm, I'm just getting lost looking at it right now. And as a kid, I'm like, okay, I'd heard of the Savage Land. I may have even seen it in like a Kazar issue of Marvel Team-Up, but never did it look like this before. The X-Men then take to the skies and they... Uh, Air, Storm wants to fly and, and explore where they are, and she gets attacked by a giant pterodactyl. Uh, we see some teamwork as as uh, Banshee is also attacked. Colossus throws Wolverine in the fastball special, where Wolverine uh, arrives and and slices into the beast and uh, repeatedly slices into the beast until it falls to the earth. And he even says as he's slicing and dicing, and blood is splattering everywhere. He says, it's been a long time since I've been able to cut loose. I intend to make the most of it. Uh, they decide to follow where Wolverine fell and go join and meet him. And uh, <clears throat> Wolverine says, as they rush to greet him, and he's sitting on top of the dead pterodactyl, sliced up. He says, you know, group, this is Wolverine talking, I think I'm going to like this place. And Cyclops said, do you ever think, what would, you, what would happen if, you'd misle- if, you, if you had missed, if you had ended up splattered over the jungle? Banshee would have, de- been, would have been dead. And Wolverine says, I didn't miss Summers. I did good. And if that bothers you, dot, dot, dot. And then Banshee interrupts and says, look, guys, we're hungry and we're tired. Uh, Storm and I spotted a village 20 miles south. Let's get going. But they're being watched from the jungle. They're being watched. And, uh, and then we return home where Jean Grey and Beast arrive at Xavier's mansion. And Jean Grey and Beast think that the rest of the X-Men are dead. And you as the reader are feeling their pain. Jean Grey goes in and informs Xavier and they cry together. They collapse as, as in silence. She, she, she just says Charles and he looks up very, you know, nervously. And then it, a downshot of them in the library in the shadows of, of, of the, uh, from the window, the window panes, you know, going over them from the moonlight. And, uh, and they're crying because she's informing him that the rest of the team is dead. And uh, then we arrive and, and see, we, we go and we see Cyclops is talking to the villagers. And here's the cool thing. 
I, I keep mentioning that this came out in the summer. <clears throat> well, starting this issue, this is the July issue. This particular issue uh, of X-Men arrived uh, on newsstands for all to see uh, <clears throat> on July 18th, 1978. So you're talking middle of summer. And again, I remember stopping in the park, sitting on the park bench because I just couldn't, I, I wasn't going to wait and get home. I had, I had to consume this right now. And this is a perfect summer adventure. Now they're in a giant prehistoric jungle of which I am not that familiar because I've only been reading comics at Marvel for about four years and I haven't had a great uh, visit in the Savage Land. But now they're, the X-Men have landed in the Savage Land and they will be there till September. They're going to be there in July, August, and September you know, the, the, the after effect of this Magneto conflict that is so fantastic. Again, encasing them all in these immovable chairs uh, underneath the, the volcano. And again, Aurora Storm, you know, one of the reasons she springs to action and gets those picks to get them out again is uh, she's claustrophobic. And this is the worst thing that could possibly happen to her. But upon getting out, battling Magneto and having it go awry because the volcano uh, destroys the complex and they have to get out, you know, they now find themselves in the Savage Land. And as a kid, I'm like, this is amazing. And they're in the village now, and Banshee is shirtless with kind of a loincloth, like dressed like Tarzan. And Cyclops has got his shirt off. He's shirtless. And you never knew how hairy and really absolutely macho the, these, these X-Men were. But then Storm emerges in a what, what, what's just shy of a three-quarter page splash. And Banshee like goes, wow, Aurora. And uh, she's basically wearing a bikini uh, with a cape that, that she's got, uh, a torn cape, by the way. But this is John Byrne showing off how beautiful he draws stunning women. And he drew no one more exotic and more appealing than he drew Storm. And so she's in basically this uh, yellow bikini. And uh, Banshee is talking to her in his loincloth like Tarzan. And then we follow Cyclops to the, uh, to the lake, to the stream where he's going to shave with, with a knife. Cause he's got a full, you know, full beard. And, uh, and he says, I, I was in command of the team. Everyone trusted me and I blew it. Gene is dead. Hank is dead. He, he says to himself, I've been over the fight with Magneto a thousand times in absolute terms. We fared pretty well as X-Men against Magneto, but how am I ever going to tell the professor that Gene and Hank are dead? Uh, it's going to break his heart. I'm surprised it hasn't broken mine. And then he says, surprised and a little scared. And then after shaving most of his face, he has just his mustache left to do. And he looks in the reflection and you see that he looks exactly like Corsair, who is the leader of the Starjammers that we met about a year previously in the X-Men. And he, for the first time, realizes that, that you know, uh, <clears throat> Corsair is likely his father. And that the way Corsair spoke to him and called him Scott, uh, he then has a flashback of jumping out of the helicopter with his brother, Alex, who's also Havoc. And he's realizing that he didn't connect the dots and that the pilot of that ship looked exactly like Corsair and that, and that Corsair is very likely his father. So we have something really important in, in terms of Cyclops history that's happening during the course of this story. Storm then comes to him and says, look, uh, I know you cared for Gene in case you want to share grief I, i'm here and he tells her i don't have any grief to share i wish i had some he says i've mourned for hank but for gene there's nothing there he says uh after the shuttle flight that's where she transformed from gene gray into the, into the phoenix when she rose from the dead 
He said, nothing has changed between us, yet everything had. Jean wasn't the girl that I loved anymore. And Aurora says, perhaps it was that she was just no longer the girl, and you are no longer the boy. And then she wanders off to bathe in the stream. And in the meantime, we go to Wolverine. And again, there's a lot of historical, we'll get get to this in the historical context section, because there's a lot going on here. Wolverine wanders off from camp, and uh, you find that in his belt, he has a picture of Jean Grey, and he is the one mourning the fact that she's probably dead, and he says, uh, he pulls out the photo, and he looks at this black and white photo of Jean Grey, and he says, babe, you were the first person I ever really cared for, and I, and I never even told you my real name. I had so many plans for us, Jeannie. Now all I have is an ache inside, and it's killing me. And again, and he says, uh, it's like someone cut out my heart as the camera pulls away from him. And this is the first time they really got into the, like, Scott is somehow not mourning that Gene, who he believes to be dead, is gone. And Wolverine is in complete and utter pain. And it's causing friction between them and will continue to as the story goes on. But again, the, the X-Men are, uh, you know, surviving in the Savage Land. Colossus goes off with two... Uh, <clears throat> tribe tribe girls, and later on in a back a pack, uh, it, there was a story called uh, a series called Classic X Men X Men Classic. It was called both. They started with class, Classic X Men, and they realized they should put the X Men before the Classics and Classic, and they rebranded it. But they did short stories that expanded moments from previous stories. And in this, they show you what Colossus did when he went off with these two girls in this village, and it's like they they got romantically involved, and they had a little bit of a, a, a little little bit of fun, which is great. Peter had some fun. So they're all trying to find their sunshine again on the other side of surviving Magneto and surviving the lava, but realizing that their, you know, their friends were gone. <clears throat> and uh, Storm goes down to the stream and dives in and and is having a swim, and she says she's feel she feels reborn. She says, "For the first time in weeks, I feel alive." She gets out and uh, pulls up onto the shore and is is basically laying out. And, and again, John Byrne is is showing her in all her bikini form, laying across. The, the grass and if you're um my age in 1978 you're you're 11 years old and you're like actually no at this point I'm 10 I'm I'm 10 years old in July of 1978 you're like this girl's hotter than any Charlie's Angels and any anybody I've seen in a magazine John Byrne was uh really knew how to draw the most beautiful and attractive females but <clears throat> you see a shadow is climbing above her is it, because we're getting a downshot of her laying on the shore a shadow is coming up across of her across her that she doesn't see and it grabs her and suddenly this being is sucking energy for her we can't really make that being out and then incredibly that being is transformed and we see lightning strike uh the the the, the village <clears throat> coming from the sky all the x-men are are alerted they're following this shocking bolt and uh you know, they, they believe that Storm went that went, went in that direction. Cyclops, Banshee, Nightcrawler, and Wolverine rush to her side to encounter a full splash page of Sauron, a pterodactyl man that I had seen in, in, in you know, flashbacks. <clears throat> but this is my first full, respectable encounter with Sauron. Full page splash. He's holding in a very unconscious, possibly dead Aurora, and we see the rest of the X-Men looking on in horror. He says, I am not dead, mutants. I am evil incarnate. I cannot die. Behold, fools, the rebirth of Sauron. And know that as I claim this she-mutant's life, so shall I claim yours. Next issue, couldn't get here fast enough, August of 1978. 
Visions of Death, Sauron battles the X-Men, and it, we begin again. No one maximized the 17-page format better than John Byrne. The only person who ever came even close, remotely close, was Jack Kirby. Full-page splash, downshot the X-Men surrounding Sauron who has Ororo in his, glip, in, in his grasp. We then go, so splash page goes to double page splash and Wolverine is slicing into Sauron. Maybe the greatest, I have to, I have to believe this is the best single double page piece of X-Men art. It's both the best double pager and the best piece of X-Men art. Cyclops and Banshee and Nightcrawler are behind uh, Wolverine the way the camera is kind of positioned um, slightly aloft in the air. Wolverine is catching air, full figure, slicing at Sauron, who is backing away. Aurora is unconscious, uh, falling into the stream. The X-Men attack uh, Sauron. They have a several-page battle with him as he takes Wolverine to the air, hypnotizes him, because again, we love hypnosis in the mutant books. Sauron has the power to hypnotize. He uh, hypnotizes uh, Wolverine, turning him against Cyclops, Wolverine, and and Banshee. So now Wolverine goes into um, attack mode and <clears throat> punching, knocking out Nightcrawler. And then, of course, uh, Wolverine is attacking Cyclops because what he sees uh, when Cyclops is blasting Sauron is through his hypnotic state, he sees a monster attacking Jean Grey. And he's like, get out of here, Genie. He screams as he attacks Cyclops because he believes Sauron is Jean Grey because of the hypnotism. He's about to uh, level Cyclops with his claws. I mean, he's about to slice into him and Cyclops full blasts him at least 30 feet into the sky and beyond the tree line and says, I hate to do this, pal, but it's for your own good. Uh, Sauron then turns on Cyclops about to fully attack him. Banshee strikes Sauron down with his sonic blast. Uh, Sauron finds Colossus, who has now wandered into the picture, and is lifting up Aurora from the stream, and he grabs Colossus to suck more energy, the same way he sucked energy from Aurora, but Colossus counteracts it by transforming into Colossus because he's in his human form as he's sucking the energy, and the backlash from that transformation knocks Sauron all the way back and turns him back into his human self, that of Carl Lycos. Now I'm going to tell you, this is again experienced on a park bench because I just could not make it home and I wanted to stop at the bench. Beautiful Saturday afternoon. And I just, just took this comic book in because this next page is one of my favorite pages in the history of, of, of the X-Men. Kazar is standing on a mound above the rest of the team in the middle of the jungle with his saber-toothed tiger, Zabu, growling at them. And he says, release my friend Carl Lycos costume one or face the wrath of Kazar, Lord of the Savage Land. To this day, I cannot look at this page without getting goosebumps. It is that exciting to me then. It is that exciting to me now. <clears throat> Wolverine says, this guy owes me, Blondie. But he's basically he's like, I'll take you both on. I'll take you and your pussycat on. Cyclops rushes in, says, stand down. We know Kazar. They all um, make nice, and and for whatever reason, later, Carl Lycos uh, talks about how he's been rehabbing in the Savage Land, and now Carl Lycos and Sauron were first introduced in an epic Roy Thomas Neil Adams adventure before they kind of shut down the X-Men and turned it into a reprint, reprint book in the very late 60s, early 70s, uh, and so they recant uh, you know, Sauron's story for readers like me who, don't, who aren't familiar with him, and uh, and he says that, uh, 
you know, he wandered the savage land and then he found a temple and a temple priestess. And he's telling this in, in, a, in a backstory that he discovered this priestess named Zaladane and that she was attempting to turn a gentleman named Kirk Marston, uh, transform him, embodying a demigod within him. She performs a ritual by painting on his chest, it ignites into fire, and he he comes out on the other side. This this Kirk Marston, who I'm meeting for the first time, but but Carl Lycos as Sauron from the 1960s issues. This this picks up when the X Men defeat him in the Roy Thomas Neil Adams adventure. He then wanders the Savage Land on his own. He eventually comes upon this ritual out in, in the jungle, and and that transforms this man into this man made of granite. He is called Garok. And she says, uh, you know, I will make you with the ashes of my God. And so she transforms this man into this God named Garok. And uh, she tells that Garok that she's going to serve him now and that they will uh, rule, you know, basically rule mankind. Garok uh, basically falls in with uh, Zaladane, who again is the priestess that, 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 that caused him to come about through the body of this human. And Carl Lycos sees all this and runs back and, and tells Kazar. And uh, <clears throat> Kazar confirms that Garok is indeed uh, more like a god. And so <sighs> this catches us up to an attempt that they made to battle Garok that was failed, a failed, a failed attempt. And that now that they've retreated uh, back to their villages, but they're basically kind of at war with Zaladane and Garok. And so now they've caught the X-Men all the way up. And Kazar is quick to, after telling them all this story about uh, Carl Lycos finding this man, Marston, who's transformed into Garok by Zaladane, and that they amassed an army and tried to battle her and, and, and are basically still in conflict with her, Kazar tries to recruit the X-Men. And uh, Wolverine pops his claws and says, fine by me, Blondie. Sounds like my kind of fracas. Banshee's like, I'm in. Let's do it. Cyclops says, no way. And Wolverine says, what do you mean? And he says, as much as I'd like to help you, Kazar, we can't. And he says, uh, and, and basically Wolverine says, that's bull. You know, Blondie's here on his knees begging us. And Cyclops make a very, makes a very sound argument. He says, Wolverine, figure it out. If we survive the volcano, Magneto probably did as well. Makes sense that his next target will be Professor X. I am sorry, but our first duty is always to the professor. Kazar says, hey, I understand. Don't worry. The Savage Land is vast, and we will basically continue our struggle against Garok. And uh, Cyclops then gives him his words and says, as soon as things are sorted out, we will be back to help you. And Wolverine says, what a crock. Any way you cut this, we're bugging out again. I'm, I'm getting tired of us running, is, is Wolverine's sentiments. So uh, Carl Lycos stands at the top of the fort of the, of, of the village that they've been staying out, greets them, says goodbye. Kazar is wandering them down to the stream where they're going to get a boat and try and navigate their way out of the Savage Land, except as they get down there, their breath becomes more and more visible to them. And Storm says, I can see my breath. The air is turning cold. And suddenly they see that the lake is frozen over. And Kazar tells them, you won't be able to go down the stream. You can't get out of here now. The path is cut off. The river is frozen. And uh, <clears throat> Kazar says, Nightcrawler and Wolverine throw snowballs back and, and forth. And Kazar says, stop playing, you fools. 
don't you realize what's happened? And uh, Nightcrawler says, it's a snowstorm. And he says, no, uh, the sun god, Garok, has upset the ecological balance of our land. The tropical hothouse effect that has kept the Antarctic cold at bay through eons is no longer. This is no, this is no mere source snowstorm for the savage land. This is death. End of issue. End of issue. As the snow is pouring down on Kazar and the X-Men standing at the embankment of this frozen river. I mean, there's ice everywhere. It says next issue to save the savage land. The final chapter finds the X-Men teaming with Kazar to uh, attack the Citadel, which is uh, the, the city of the sun god. And here's a really important, we're going to get really into the depths of this in the historical uh, notes and historical relevance. There are pterodactyl riders that are patrolling the city and they attack uh, the X-Men, Banshee and Nightcrawler, Bamf up and Aurora and they take them out. Cyclops too, they're using their teamwork. They're being good little X-Men. Uh, Kazar almost slips off the icy peak to his death, but is, uh, is, is saved, is retrieved. Uh, by a pterodactyl rider who is now presumably flying off with him. Uh, Aurora, Wolverine, Nightcrawler are alone now with Zabu because the rest of the X-Men, Cyclops, uh, Colossus, they've all been um, they've all been taken by the pterodactyl riders. So what's what remains after the pterodactyl riders have taken Kazar and Cyclops and Colossus and Banshee. Uh, in their grips, uh, it's cool. These guys, they look like like kind of Wild West Indians. That's how they depict them. Loincloths, headbands, and they're riding pterodactyls. And they r- fly away with them, leaving only Nightcrawler, Wolverine, and Storm, and Zabu, the, the, the saber-toothed tiger. Wolverine uh, bonds with the tiger and uh, pets it, and they make nice. And... Uh, <clears throat> He tells Zabu, go back to the village and get as many warriors as you possibly can to return here. And so Zabu takes off and Wolverine says, uh, he's got, he's got more smarts than most people I know. Then they figure out a a plan of attack. They're going to try and sneak into the Citadel. Well, there's a sentry and they call Wolverine calls out and says, a sentry. We got to take this creep out fast and silently. Nightcrawler starts to say, well, I can teleport and Wolverine in the shadows behind what we're shooting behind. We see a close up in frame of the guard with his braids and he's holding his spear. He's like a, you know, uh, uh, a barbarian guard. He, he's sitting there and it says, uh, uh, we see behind him Wolverine, the shadows and Wolverine says, thanks, but no thanks, pal. This guy's mine. The next panel nightcrawler and storm storm is, 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 is basically her fist is to her mouth. It looks like she's biting her fist. Nightcrawler has the most horrific look on his face. And he says, mein Gott, which is my God. Okay. And we hear a, we, the sound effects in the panel is snicked. Then the next panel, Wolverine is kneeling over the, 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 the body is mostly in shadows. There's some blood all over his arm. You can see the forearm and storm in her thought balloon says he is like the great cats on the veldt. When he strikes, there is no mercy. And he says, coast is clear. Follow me. Wolverine, Nightcrawler, and uh, Storm make their way into the Citadel. We then see a giant lizard creature attack Wolverine. And only one page later, we see that he snicked, he, he activates his claws through inside the lizard's mouth and pulls out of the lizard mouth, all bloody. The lizard is dead. So we are getting 
the idea that Wolverine is quite the ruthless killer of man and lizard alike. Uh, a bunch of lizards are about to attack them. Storm blows them away. Bottom line, they make themselves th- their way into the throne room the, uh, 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 of the Citadel, where Cyclops, Banshee, Kazar, and Colossus are about to be burned at the stake. They can't burn Colossus because of his uh, metal shell. He's, he's resistant, but he is definitely heating up and becoming magma hot. Cyclops finally springs into action. Night, Nightcrawler, uh, Nightcrawler, Nightcrawler teleports in, grabbing the... Uh, the the device that is preventing that is that is covering Cyclops visor he pulls it away Cyclops blasts the uh, post where Colossus is burning freeing him the X Men spring into action Garrock flees but he's very powerful his glowing eyes are blasting into Cyclops visor blast and they're having a standoff but then the uh, the the ground that the Citadel is built on uh, begins to give way in a giant earthquake. The center of the earth, the earth's core is shaking. Garrock is falling to his death. Uh, Storm, realizing there's a man underneath this demigod, flies deep into the chasm to get him, but she can't. It's too narrow. Uh, she can't reach him. He falls to his death, and Storm rises back up. They all get out of the citadel right as the entire citadel implodes, explodes. It's kind of like the Death Star. Uh, Garrock defeated, Kazar saved, the Savage Land safe. The uh, you know everybody makes it out of the explosive citadel, and uh, they prepare to get on a raft, a really nice custom raft that everyone's made for them. Carl Lycos, aka Sauron, again, uh, you know, apologizes for the difficulty he caused as Sauron, and says, "Look, I'm not going with you, Cyclops. The world thinks that." I'm dead as Carl Lycos. I'm going to leave it like that. He says, I understand. I hope you find whatever you're looking for. Uh, the X-Men then sail off into the waters. Cyclops blast gives them a giant heave from the shore. And then they fly into the eye of a storm and into the fall of 1978. Uh, there is nothing better than a Savage Land Jungle Adventure, uh, drawn by John Byrne, Terry Austin, written by Chris Claremont with pterodactyl men, uh, men made of stone. Garrock is, you know, a, a petrified man, uh, an island uh, mystic priestess, uh, a giant citadel. I mean, this this adventure had everything. Uh, X-Men bare-chested throughout, uh, Cyclops bare-chested, Banshee bare-chested, Colossus bare-chested. They just looked completely and utterly uh you know uh savage prehistoric native you would say native uh storm in a bikini again they they were out of their regular costumes for the most part they were wandering around they had become more tribal uh in the in these two episodes these two issues and then they attacked basically kind of a fantastic more of a fantasy-based uh, character, look, I'm going to tell you, kids like me, I I came to the name Sauron as this pterodactyl man far before I came to exact same spelling and pronunciation of the great villain of the Lord of the Rings saga. But with that, uh, we seal off this incredible summer. Which, as I said, these books were like I couldn't even make it home. I was so excited. I, my enthusiasm for this, as I get lost looking back over this, I mean, whether it's the jungle setting, 
uh, I mean, literally for basically five, six months. So the, the, the X-Men were in the circus. Then they were in a volcano being subdued prisoners of Magneto. They come out of that on the other side in this beautiful savage land, prehistoric jungle landscape where they spend the next two and a half issues. And in the meantime, Jean Grey goes back home with Beast to inform, you know, Professor X that the team is dead. And that's the dynamic that's going to continue to play out. This is the beginning of the international run that would last one solid year. And we're going to end this kind of story view. We've done the story view, and now I can dig into and attack with the Rob Topsy. My, my absolute favorite part of the Rob Topsy is what we tackled right here at the top, the historical relevance, the historical uh, accuracy relevance, which we also call the notables. It's kind of in the same in the same pot, in the same stew. So this is packed with it. This story has so much more historical relevance than you you think just on the surface. And let let's get to uh to the very first notable historical relevance of the Savage Land story that I just shared with you. You'll notice that I told you that it came out in July and August and September. And actually, this storyline is starting with the Magneto storyline, the, the, the Circus Freaks X-Men, which is Mesmero, then two Magnetos, then three Savage Lands. That is part of the X-Men going monthly. They, they plastered it. They plastered it across the covers. Now, monthly. Because again, John Byrne was necessary because Dave Cockrum wasn't able to pick up the pace. He wasn't able to keep the monthly pace. And, you know, uh, having been somebody who's made comics for the last 37 years, monthly work is hard. A lot of people can't hack it. A lot of people can't do it, especially now more than ever. You just don't see books coming out six or five in a row from the same artist. It's very rare. It was just the same back then. Nothing changed. But uh, John Byrne was was brought on in order to... uh, get the book back up and running. They felt that what was special, what was going on in this book would resonate more if it came out monthly. They thought what, 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 what Chris was doing with the stories and the appeal of the characters would benefit if, if it was taken off the bi-monthly and brought to the monthly. And in, in essence, uh, this was the last stand. Archie Goodwin, uh, may he rest in peace, a brilliant uh, editor-in-chief of Marvel uh, during that period who was handling like all of the top the top chores right in between Jim Shooter taking over tells a story in in one of the uh the X-Men omnibuses and in the collections there is a detailed uh recollection by both him and then Terry Austin talking about how he really felt it would be a shame if they had to turn you know the power off with the X-Men again because now it was slumping in sta- sales because it wasn't able to come out monthly and Dave Cockrum couldn't meet the, the challenges of getting the book out. And again, his, his art was brilliant. It was beautiful. Uh, his very last issue, Dave Cockrum's X-Men 107 is, is, is my third favorite after giant size acts after X-Men 100, 107. He went out on the highest of notes. It's a gorgeous book, but then here comes John Byrne and he's cooking. And Archie Goodwin had said to John Byrne, I, I, I want you because you can put this out monthly and i think your style along with terry austin inking because they had just done a star lord special uh together he felt and, and 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 it was really well received from people in the offices to fans like myself and he's like i think if we can put your magic and and look man 
This was just a great coaching move, just like a great lineup that he put together that resulted in a huge win. But X-Men 112, the Magneto, it says now on sale monthly. X-Men 113, banner right across the top, all in bold, now on sale monthly. They wanted you to know, like, like we are coming at you. We are we are here regular. Um, and and this this book started cooking. It, the fact that it was coming out monthly and it looked so amazing and the stories were so tense and creative. And again, the Magneto in these books is as sinister as he has ever been. They powered him up. He spoke of how uh, you know this new version of him coming back from the uh, de-aged kind of incapacitated version that was being studied on Muir Island by Moria McTaggart. Uh, in the old X-Men before the kind of the lights went off and in the transition to kind of some of his minor backup, uh, his, his minor guest appearances and stuff like I, like I told you, supervillain team up uh, in the champions that Magneto had been powered up. And he shows it here by, again, raising his hands, you know, at the end of, of issue 112. I have defeated them all. I mean, it, as a fan, you're like, this guy's powerful. I mean, he, he comes in and out of a a fully active volcano with his magnetic shield just right through the lava into his citadel, you know, into his complex, defeats the X-Men, puts them in these restrictive chairs. I would love if at some point they said like that they had been down there for weeks. That would have been great. And 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 if that's implied, I missed it 100%. But uh, Magneto, while the X-Men are bound and, and the reporter tells you like the FF have disbanded and the Avengers have basically been outlawed by the government during this time, like Magneto was roaming free and getting more powerful, but he made that mistake. He returned to the volcano. The X-Men had freed themselves. And we get this giant conflict where, uh, again, the, the lava seeps in and boom, we're in the Savage Land. But it matters that this book was coming out monthly. It, it leapt to the head of the pack with me and so many other fans. But the break into the Savage Land gave us some really significant firsts. So, so, so the most you know, relevant, I think, to the entire franchise at this time is that the book went monthly. Off the bi-monthly schedule, not six issues a year. Now we're giving you 12 issues a year. And again, if you're somebody who's looking to try something out and it's appearing every 30 days, you're likely going to, you know, check it out. It's appearing with greater frequency. How many of us would wish that we were getting 15, 18 episodes of our favorite series instead of eight Eight, six, seven. I mean, this is what these new streaming shows are doing. But you increase the frequency. You you take less breaks. You come back more frequently. The fan base is there. The fan base is there. I mean, that's what happened with picking up the pace and getting this book from bi-monthly to monthly. Now, the most story historical thing that happened here is something that became somewhat of a controversy uh, within the comics industry, certainly within the halls of Marvel. <clears throat> That all-important sequence that I laid out for you in the third chapter where they are looking to break into Garok's giant sun city, the city of the sun god, uh, and Kazar and Cyclops and uh, Colossus and Banshee are swooped up and, and stolen away by the pterodactyl riders. We are left with Wolverine, Storm, and Nightcrawler. And I told you there's the scene where Wolverine says, I'm going to take that guard out. And Nightcrawler says, I can, I can teleport and take him. Nope. Quick and easy. This guy's mine. And he kills him. He very clearly kills the guy. Uh, the fact that Storm and, and Nightcrawler have these wretched looks of pain on their face. Storm is biting her fist, trying to look away. Nightcrawler can't look away. And, and the, 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 
the curl of his nose and and the and the shape of his mouth says he's he's having a difficult time watching this. Wolverine is casually standing over this bloody forearm. That's all that, w- that we see is coming up from this rock that's otherwise covering the fallen body. And then for for Storm to say he is like the great cats on the veldt. He strikes and there is no mercy in him. It's implied. He killed this guy. Well, this creates a four alarm fire and no less than the author, Mr. Chris Claremont himself tackles this in the X-Men Companion. The X-Men Companion was the de facto Bible of every fanboy in 1981, 1982. Published by Fanagraphics. I've quoted from it before in in, in, uh, in other podcasts, but... They really go extensively all in on this uh, beautiful Michael Golden cover on volume number one of the X-Men Companion. Again, it was released, I'm sorry, into stores in 1982. It was a giant oversized magazine style edition, except it was really thick. So it's like a little, it's like a book, um, soft, soft cover. I would love if they gave a proper hardcover and did the entire, because on the back is the entire illustration that Michael Golden did, but they, they separate the background uh, in lieu of giving you the logo on the front cover and then give you the entire uh, virgin image on the back cover of this X-Men companion. Uh, this this shot by Michael Golden is, is one of the most striking X-Men shots uh, in the character's history. During a Chris Claremont interview, the interviewer, uh, who who is Peter Sanderson, uh, who is quite the comic book historian and chronicler, he asks... Middle of this interview, middle of this interview with Chris Claremont, Peter Sanderson says, hey, do you think keeping Thunderbird around that he would have become redundant because the way that you evolved Wolverine? Chris Claremont answers and says, well, he was redundant from the beginning. In Thunderbird, you had a super strong, super fast man with the ability to track anything anywhere. And Peter Sanderson said, and he had a mean personality. And Chris says, and a mean personality. Wolverine, you had basically the same. Wolverine may, may not be fast, but he had the claws and he had the mean personality. On the other hand, Thunderbird had a much nicer costume, much more sensible costume anyway. It's hard to say and one has to wonder, would his characterization as established by Len Wein have remained constant with me? I don't know. No one else's did except for Storm. Really, she was a goddess then. She stayed a goddess. I can't really understand some critics' assessment of her as a hypocritical prig. Peter Sanderson says, is that because she says... She has sworn an oath against killing, but nevertheless tolerates Wolverine's tolerance for killing. And Chris Claremont says, well, I can see where they may think that. He says, uh, but that was why I specifically threw in the line in the Savage Land scene in number 116, in X-Men 116, which is the final chapter of the Savage Land Garrox saga, uh, where she talks about the lions on the veldt. She does not or did not view him as a man. She did not view him as a being as herself. She thought of him as a lion who walked on two feet. You do not criticize a lion for going out and killing a wildebeest. That's what it does. By the same token, at the same time, I was evolving a characterization of Wolverine, which is which is essentially stated in X-Men number 140, where he essentially tells Nightcrawler, if a man comes at me with fists, I will meet him with fists. But if they draw a gun or threaten someone I'm protecting, they've crossed that line. He said there's a line that John Wayne says in The Shootist. He's speaking to Ron Howard. He says, essentially, he will not do this. I won't be this. I do not do those things to others, and I require it of them in return. And that essentially sums up his character. But in but that is essentially Wolverine's character. He exists. There is a line around him. And if you cross that line, you will meet the consequences. 
Peter Sanderson says, and you've said that Wolverine is a former soldier and spy. He does not have the inhibition inhibitions against killing that other people does. And he says, no, he has a more, no, no he has no more inhibition against killing than Nick Fury does. The body count in Sergeant Fury and the Howling Commandos had to be seen to be believed. I mean, the commandos would walk into a room full of Germans and you would see smoking Tommy guns. And are you going to tell me that those Germans were only wounded? Going back to Savage Land, number the Savage Land scene in X-Men 169, in number 116 again. These are all Chris Claremont. I am reading word for word. As originally constructed in the plot, it was specifically set up in a way that it was a wartime situation. You have Storm Wolverine and Nightcrawler on the ground. You had a guard standing watch. You had an airborne patrol of pterodactyl riders 100 feet overhead. The slightest outcry would have brought them down and would have defeated the X-Men. That man had to be taken out swiftly, silently, and permanently. They couldn't afford to tie him up. Maybe he could wake up and go, hmm, 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 hmm. The point was Storm would have tried to do something. Storm would not have tried to take him alive. Nightcrawler could not teleport to the attack because of the fact that the teleporting involves light and smell they could have heard him seen him smelled him it just came down to wolverine and for wolverine it's a killing situation he has no qualms about it because he knows that the man would have no qualms about killing him if it came to that peter sanderson then asks well isn't this a bit of an after the fact justification because you have said that it was John Byrne and Roger Stern who decided to imply in that scene that Wolverine dot 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 Chris says, no, 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 no. I'm talking about the original plot. I'm talking about the original plot I put down on paper in which I said, this is how the scene is structured. He said, John chose not to do it the way that I, I wrote it. He did not establish the threat, the pterodactyl writers flying guard patrols right overhead who would have been alerted by the man's outcries i saw the way john did it we had no time to change it and unfortunately i had to come in from an ethic in comics that says when you're working off a plot you essentially deal with the pencils that you get if you want something more specific you write a full script jim shooter and roger stern are roger stern another writer that was working for marvel by the way uh and now back to chris's exact words are far more likely to order stuff repenciled redone read this read that I will try to find a way to write around it unless it's absolutely necessary because to me, out of the ethic I was trained under, the art is pretty much sacrosanct, sacrosanct, partly because no one would order an artist to change anything when I was there, when I was starting out. Also, given the scene, there was no way to have it redone without restructuring the entire rest of the book. See, in many cases, when there are artistic conflicts between what I had wanted as the writer and the person who wrote the plot and what John had interpreted from the plot, he says what I had wanted as the writer and the person who wrote the plot. So he's, I, Chris Claremont, the writer, and the person who wrote the plot, and John had interpreted from the plot, the change would not, could not have been done in the two panels that were allowed. It would have involved a structural change. It would have in- affected the rest of the outcome of the book, or so it seemed to me. So I would just generally not do it. In this case, I left out the snicked, indicating Wolverine had unsheathed his claws. The interference was there. If you were a reader, you could infer that Wolverine went up and killed the guy or went up and knocked him out. Roger and John talked about it without consulting me. The sound effect was then put in. The first I saw of it was when I saw the make ready and Roger, as the editor, overruled me. I was furious, but there was nothing I could do about it. It was done. In a sense, that relates specifically to the Phoenix story because what you have at Marvel in an editorial situation, well, what you have in comics is a situation in which the writer is not the master of their own fate. The editor is the arbiter of what goes into the book. The arbiter is an excellent term. 
to describe because many of the decisions are arbitrary and worst last minute. Again, moving ahead somewhat to the Dark Phoenix story, we had a situation in which John and I knew we were trading on thin ice with the story. We were stretching things as far as we could go in terms of what we felt we could persuade Marvel to accept. And we both felt this way was that this was a storyline that had to be cleared every step of the way. Roger Stern at the point he had gone off staff in the middle of the storyline. Jim Salakrup had come in and taken over. So here I am giving plot points to Jim Salakrup. He's speaking of the Dark Phoenix. He's jumped now from Savage Land. And he says, uh, Jim would show these to Jim Shooter and check with him. And we were dealing with some very heavy concepts here again with Dark Phoenix. Gene is killing entire planets. Jim, Gene ne- Jim never showed that to Jim Shooter. Jim Salakrup never showed it to Jim Shooter. Just kind of delineating for for you guys uh, some some things that could be unclear from reading directly from this. He says, Jim Shooter then told Jim Salakrupt he would trust his judgment. Well, as it turned out, Jim approved everything we did. And then Jim Shooter saw the make ready. So what was about to go to the printer of issue 135, and it says here, and he popped a cork. So the bottom line is... uh, Wolverine killing the Savage Land Guard uh, turned out to be the very first time that we saw Wolverine murder somebody in their life. Was definitely not a hero. As a kid sitting on that park bench in that beautiful park in Anaheim on that awesome August afternoon, I was like, wow, Wolverine is not you know, fooling around. And they had set it up again when Sauron was battling them and confusing them with his hypnosis. He has his arm raised in such a way that he is about to put his claws through Cyclops. And if Cyclops does not blast him completely off of him, you have possibly Wolverine skewering Cyclops because he's been hypnotized. And what he sees isn't quite right, but you see the level of violence and the level of violent engagement that Wolverine is capable of going. And as far as he's taken it in the pages of the Savage Land adventure for the first time. And when he eventually takes out that guard, you're like, oh. And what he's, Chris may have forgotten, he doesn't understand. Looking at that panel, again, there's blood coming down all over that guy's arm. I don't think he sliced him in the arm. I think he ended him in the same way that the next page, Wolverine sticks his hand in the lizard's mouth and clearly pops his claws, again, a snicked. And then the next panel, he's pulling it out and the lizard has blood coming all out. And, and, and the way John Byrne draws, draws the lizard, there's no more tension in the lizard. The lizard isn't aggressively biting down on Wolverine's hand. He is like falling away like he's dead. Wolverine snicked at him. And so we're not to believe that the, the, you know, page earlier, he did the same thing to the guard. He did. And of course, this would cause conflict. And uh, as, as you can see, between Chris and the editorial team in how it, how it played out. And just in case you wanted to hear the entire episode from John Byrne's point of view in the X-Men Companion Volume 2, John Byrne addresses it because the interviewer, Peter Sanderson, uh, brings it up all over again. He brings it up and says, hey, John, why do you feel some people, pros and fans alike, get so upset over Wolverine's killings? Do you think they are in any way morally defensible? John Byrne says, Wolverine, these are John Byrne's words exactly, Wolverine as I have drawn him has never killed except in self-defense. I think a lot of people just don't like the idea of a superhero killing. There's a lot of people who say, well, this is going to function as a role model. We don't want our kids doing this. To me, that's absurd. Your kids can't do that. They do not have adamantium claws. Peter Sanderson says, well, they can always read Conan too. Byrne says, sure, they can always read Conan and they can go out and do what he does with a knife. But the important element of any superhero to me is the unreality of it all. You can't do what a superhero does. So no matter what the superhero does, you can't do it. 
So this isn't a role model except on a purely moral level. And that's why, as I say, although it's totally homicidal and he has no control over that, I was very, very careful that Wolverine never killed except for the guard in the Savage Land number 116 for which you could come up with all extenuating circumstances about it being self-defense. But he never killed unless the other person tried to kill himself. He says, I suppose you could even say that off panel, the guard turned around and aimed a gun at him or, or whatever else he was carrying when he did it. John Byrne says, whatever. It's also that what was obvious, it's also that that was obviously in a survival situation, a wartime situation, that the Savage Land was at war with Garok and his people. Wolverine was one of us and he was one of them. And Wolverine did just did exactly what he would have done if he was fighting Nazis in World War II. So interestingly enough, a point, uh, especially in 1982, being buzzed around because it's what John said. People were like, wow, this guy kills. Now, in a different podcast, I talked about the temperamental heroes and how I grew up favoring them. First, it was Prince Namor. Then it was Luke Cage. Uh, then it was Ben Grimm, the thing. And then finally, I, I, I met the mother load in Wolverine, this guy who I could relate to as a teenager with raging hormones and, and a bit of a temper. And here he is and feeling like an outcast. And, and so I identified with Wolverine. And the killing aspect of him, to me, in the summer of 1978, I'm like, whoa, this guy's dangerous. This sets him apart. And I was kind of fearful in that moment of him around the rest of the characters in that Wolverine is not somebody to uh, screw around with. If he snaps, as I said, over Cyclops under hypnotism, it looked like he was going to kill him. And then he goes off. And now we have the writer and the artist of X-Men 116 confirming that they thought under the conditions of a wartime situation trying to get beyond the palace guard and, and stay, you know, uh, under notice that he went off and killed him. Now, when Joel kills a sentry in, in the last of us to, to, to protect Ellie, we don't care. That's just par for the course, sticks a knife right in the guy's jugular, just takes him out. It happens all the time now, especially in R rated fare. But going back 1978, some of you guys are like, I can't even fathom the 70s. It was the best of time. Just take my word for it. 10 year old Robbie loved it. and. Wolverine's dangerous kind of threat level is our third point of historical relevance here. I, I mentioned to you in X-Men 115, when the X-Men are settling into their village, that Cyclops is dealing with the fact that he has no, he's kind of cold to Jean. He, he doesn't really feel, he, he feels hollowed out. He's mourning the death of his longtime friend, Hank McCoy, who they joined, joined the X-Men with. But his longtime love from X-Men number one, the girl of his dreams, he tells Storm, I feel no remorse, which she said, well, that's because she's no longer a girl, just like you're no longer a boy. Later on in that episode, she says, oh, maybe I was too harsh to Scott. Maybe I, I snapped at him too hard. But, you know, as a reader, I love those mature themes. But the very next page, when you see Wolverine shirt off again with all the X-Men with their shirts off, enjoying basking in kind of the native uh, atmosphere of the Savage Land, looking like literally a bunch of kind of you know, savages themselves and looking rad. It was cool. You don't see, there wasn't a point in the Avengers of the Fantastic Four where you saw all of them hanging around shirtless. And it was just something more realistic. Again, they're in a hot jungle, Cyclops, shirtless, Colossus, shirtless, Banshee, shirtless, Wolverine, shirtless again. And you learned how hairy these guys are. You know, Scott and, and Wolverine were on the much hairier side and Wolverine was on the super duper hairier side. But the fact that Wolverine had this photo of Gene in, tucked away in his belt under his trunks that he took out and he professed his love and that a piece of his soul was missing. 
you as the reader are like, wow, this love triangle is deep. He really um, is in love with Jean. And we as readers already having seen that Jean is alive, having contacted Professor Xavier and telling him that the rest of the team is dead. So you got these two misunderstandings going on. You've got this um, potential for when they all reunite. What's going to happen? You know, Wolverine's in love with Jean. Scott claims to be in love with Jean, but is trouble having trouble kind of mourning her. So historical relevance, it really hits the note that the two of them were in love with Jean Grey, which I love in the very first X-Men movie, they waste no time establishing that Hugh Jackman is hot for Jean Grey, hitting on her. And Scott Summers is like, back down, that's my girl. They, that love triangle was established here in these issues more powerfully than it had ever been established before. Final historical relevance here is uh, for fans like myself, uh, kind of revisiting all of the Neil Adams, Roy Thomas tropes. Again, they got together and Roy is on, is on uh, record as he was, you know, a big time player uh, at Marvel at the time and thought bringing on somebody as accomplished as Neil Adams would be the thing that jumped the X-Men sales. I've always said that the problem with the X-Men wasn't the art of the stories. It was the characters. They were basically very boring in a world of Fantastic Four and Avengers to have a, a guy with wings. Uh, I call them temple casters or, or arm throwers. You know, Iceman throws his arm out, ices you. Angel, you know, angrily flaps his wings. Beast jumps around. Uh, Cyclops and Jean Grey and Professor Xavier, Xavier are all temple touchers. They're not terribly visual characters. But when we get to the Colossus Wolverine area, we've got, we've got way more exciting visuals none more exciting than the knives coming out of wolverine's hands which obviously excited a generation and never looked back but john Byrne is quoted that one of the reasons they pivoted to the savage land as fast as they did in those issues is that chris and john were huge fans of the uh of the uh the neil adams era and uh <clears throat> he said uh he said that both both he and Chris really wanted to dance in in that in that uh, Savage Land era, which Roy Thomas and Neil Adams did, which introduced Sauron. And so they're kind of again. Remember, I told you that I've told you in different podcasts that Jim Lee eventually, when he got on X Men, convinced Chris to do what he didn't want to do because Chris just wanted to keep going forward to go back and revisit the greatest hits, revisit favorite moments of the John Byrne Chris Claremont era that everyone held so high and, and do further sequels and follow-ups to those stories. Cause I'm telling you as fans, we wanted them. And so I'm thankful Jim actually won that showdown and was able to, you know, complete that mission and go back and revisit these stories that we wanted to be revisited so badly. He went back to the Savage Land. There's Kazar, there's Naboo. Now it's got Rogue. I mean, Jim revisited in the same way here. John Byrne is quoted as saying at that point, Chris Claremont had only read the Roy Thomas, Neil Adams, X-Men stuff. It was quite a while later that he sat down and read all of it, started from Stan and Jack. But yeah, we both wanted to visit the Roy and Neil Adams stuff. Uh, somebody pointed out that we did the Roy and Neil Adams stuff in reverse order. We did Savage Land, then Sauron, then Sentinels. He said, uh, yeah, we had influences and we showed them. So they wanted to purposely revisit the stuff that Neil was so famous on the X-Men, even though that didn't move a needle. And Roy Thomas lamented, like, I thought Neil would get the X-Men sales up and was shocked to this day because if you get, they've collected Neil Adams, uh, imme- just immaculate X-Men art, the issues that he did in a, in a nice, fat, album size hardcover. They did this a couple of years ago. 
and you can find it. You can look for it on Amazon. I'm casting over. I'm looking at it right now. It's called X-Men Roy Roy Thomas Neil Adams. Giant album hardcover. You should be able to get it. Maybe it was out 2018, 2017. You should go check it out. It's the, 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 the bigger format and in a hardcover just makes it worth the while. But Sauron, Kazar, Savage Land, um, these tribal issues. Now they had Magneto in their story uh, briefly as well. So it's 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 beautiful. Uh, you can tell in in the work that John is doing, especially with Sauron, especially with Kazar, that he is trying to capture some of that Neil Adams magic. Neil Adams is already a huge artistic influence on John to begin with. So it's fun that they are on record as saying, yeah, we wanted to revisit the era that we liked the, the most. And in fact, according to John at that time, to get the X-Men assignment, Chris had only read the Roy Thomas era, which isn't exclusive, just Savage Land stuff, but it's the meat on the bone of their run. It's the special part of their run. So uh, again, there is some heavy duty um, um, historical context all the way through this. First, Wolverine murders, okay? And then to close out, I'll tell you, again, book went monthly for the very, very first time. Um, One of the things... uh, that that uh you know Chris Claremont touches on again later on in the companion he says Jim Shooter uh he wanted Wolverine to have the capacity only the capacity to go crazy and kill but never ever kill uh he says he wanted Wolverine to be a potential danger to not only X-Men to the other other people but he did not want him killing so again Jim Shooter had a real problem with how they were portraying Wolverine gadding people. Now they would jump to later on during the Hellfire Club uh that Wolverine would once again just slice and dice people and and Jim Shooter that also drove him crazy because he wanted Wolverine held accountable. But that is another story for another time. This is the historical relevancy of this entire Magneto and Savage Land uh you know episode given given the revisit of the Roy Thomas, Neil Adams, Savage Lane kind of saga, Sauron, Kazar. You got the book finally went monthly and started picking up steam, came out every single month. Great summer adventure for, you know, summer readers. And uh, and then, of course, Wolverine as murderer for the very first time happened in these in these pages. As to creative pedigrees, the great thing about these two gentlemen, these three gentlemen, but Terry's going to get his own showcase in a minute. There's not much, you know, you can say about Chris Claremont and John Byrne that hasn't already been said. They are the two biggest stars in the X-Men universe. When I told you that very few people would argue with me doing these uh, issues and calling them classics, uh, even with Jim's uber popularity, the the Claremont Byrne is seen as the gold standard for a generation that's still breathing. When we all die, I have no doubt Jim will hold the cup up high and he will be uh, regulated. But it is, um, I'm not sure because Stan and Jack have long since passed and their fantastic four run is still held as the gold standard i i i believe that while jim is breathing down the back of this run the work that chris and john Byrne and terry did has continued to shine bright 40 plus years later i mean this work is always collected as marvel masterworks as isolated uh epic editions epic collections um individual uh, you know, hardcovers, breaking up these chapters, multiple printings on their omnibuses, uh, different album size reprintings, artistic editions, the John Byrne, uh, Chris Claremont, Terry Austin, X-Men uh, are, are, again, the gold standard. And and for me, the greatest run in the history of comics. Chris didn't only bring uh, X-Men to, to, to popularity. He wrote 
uh, critically acclaimed and popular issues of Spider-Woman, of Ms. Marvel, of Marvel Team-Up. That's the first time I met these two gentlemen working together, not always with Terry Austin. Jim didn't, uh, John Byrne didn't have him inking him consistently on, on Marvel Team-Up. But Chris and John worked together on Marvel Team-Up, transferred that magic, then to Star-Lord, then boom, to the X-Men. Uh, John Byrne went on following X-Men to write and draw a five-year uh, acclaimed run that is right behind Kirby's is, as being beloved, as being adored, worshipped, uh, an enormous run he took over as writer, penciler, inker, in, in most cases, on this epic Fantastic Four run. He created Alpha Flight, which is a, a destination they get to later in this international trek. Again, I cut it short to these five issues, but leaving the Savage Land, they have a two-issue adventure in Japan after a one-issue interlude about Professor Xavier and his origin in Cairo, Egypt. But the, the X-Men are on that raft during that issue. They're, they're kind of the framing sequence, and then we go back to Cairo, and we get this international episode in young Xavier's life when he first kind of really uh, learned the extent of his telekinetic powers. We come out of that and the X-Men are in Japan for two issues. And then we come out of that and they're in Canada on, on the way home. So from the Antarctica, Savage Land, Cairo, Japan, two issues, Canada, two issues. This was, this was an amazing run that to me is as important, if not more so, than Dark Phoenix because it built the excitement each and every month. Alpha Flight was a big deal. Building on Vindicator, who was introduced in X-Men number 109, a creation of John Byrne, part of his Canadian heritage. He got this Canadian agent to come in and track down Wolverine to bring him home because he was part of a Canadian uh, program called Weapon X. He then expanded that in later issues with Alpha Flight and then went on to launch Alpha Flight, which he did alongside Fantastic Four for the better part of three and a half years. These books were going back back and forth. John Byrne uh, then went and led uh, uh, led a giant exodus to DC where he did Superman and transformed Superman, getting Superman on the cover of Time Magazine, himself getting uh, on the Today Show to promote it. Uh, John Byrne is quite simply the most popular artist uh, of, of the Bronze Age, neck and neck in, in, in terms of importance overall with Frank Miller. Again, Chris Claremont would author the X-Men to the top of the charts, all the way for guys like Mark Silvestri, Rob Liefeld, and Jim Lee to contribute. Uh, I was lucky enough to do one single issue. Rick Leonardi, Art Adams, uh, Alan Davis, just an absolute murderer's row. Paul Smith of artists that would work alongside Chris, who following John Byrne proved that he could keep these uh, th 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 this ship sailing um, you know, all around the world. It, it, it just never stopped. He kept the adventure rolling. The sales were high. And I mean, there's really not much more you can say. These are titans of the Bronze Age, titans of comics, period. Uh, I'm not sure that they aren't the 1A and 1B of, of the X-Men Hall of Fame. The work they did is as transformational as the work that I, I say Frank Miller did on the Batman franchise. So as far as creative pedigrees go, uh, if you want to go find Chris Claremont work and John Byrne work, you won't be able to look Look hard. They're constantly being reprinted, constantly available in all manner of editions in your comic store, uh, available dig digitally, however you want to consume them. Uh, there is there is plenty of both gentlemen to go around. And the magic started right here on this era with the Magneto conflict, the collapsing volcano, the Savage Land, and everything that followed. Brushed with greatness. This will be one of the few times that we Talk about brush with great greatness, and I'm not sure that Terry Austin did a whole lot with a brush. But Terry Austin is, and all parties agree, even guys from his era who want to be considered 
maybe on his same tier. I've talked to them. They will ultimately bow to no, he's the he's he's the goat. Terry Austin uh was inked all but one issue of John Burns X-Men run. And it is phenomenal work. And I did not know until I got much older how much he blended with him to make this joint X-Men style, how John would look completely different on his own, especially in the years following, as he did when Terry would ink him. They really had similar approaches. Terry had a bit of a cartoony bend to his own work so that when he put his own application of style on John, it was absolutely the perfect fit. Terry Austin created his own uh, crow quills. He cut them. He sliced them. He made his own nibs. Uh, these are these are dip pens that you dip in ink. And from the first time I went to the convention circuit and I met other fanboys, people would talk about how impressed they were with Terry Austin. Jim Shooter is quoted as saying a Terry Austin inked title would bump sales 15 to 20,000 units. Think about that. Can any other inker in the history of the medium say that they had that impact? I know. I, I bought anything he inked. If he did a cover over Frank Miller on Machine Man, I bought it. If he did a cover over George Perez on Captain America, which he did even if I didn't like the interiors and I wasn't, Captain wasn't, Captain America wasn't on my main pull list, I bought it. Terry Austin brought all manner of texture work. He brought duotone shading, which is a film uh, film sheets that he cut out and paste down to create different textures and films. I have quite a few original pages from these issues that I'm sharing with you and and the textures that he did freehand with his nibs, whether he fashioned them himself or he was using a traditional 102 uh, Hunt, a Hunt 102 Crowquill pen, or, or as I was told by other friends of his, but he would never divulge his secrets, he would slice the nibs in any direction, uh, giving a different uh, line People have tried to duplicate Terry for as long as I have been enjoying comics. I've seen other inkers kind of slightly almost get there, but nobody lands the plane. Nobody is able to duplicate him. Um, Many of my favorite jobs are with Terry Austin as inker. Uh, Terry Austin is on record as wishing that he inked more of like George Perez, who he inked once on the X-Men Annual 3. And George is on record in an interview in Amazing Heroes saying his favorite ink job ever is the ink job that he received from Terry Austin on that annual. Terry. his influence carries into inkers such as Scott Williams, Art Taber, Danny Mickey, Dan Panosian, uh, John Sabal, uh, Norm Ratmond. Uh, I could just, the list goes on and on. Richard Friend. Terry Austin is, in my opinion, the most influential inker of the 20th century. He mentored under Dick Giordano, pulled away. Dick had, Dick had a combo uh, brush and, and pen, uh, a very polished look that he had established, but Terry took it to the next level. Whoever Terry inked, that was my favorite version of that person. And that really goes for John Byrne. And again, as I've collected these pages over the years, I studied them. I look at them up close. I, I put them in a different light to see the different um, scratch and, and the cut of the, of the nib on the tooth of the Bristol board. Uh, in this in this issue alone, you'll see all manner of different techniques that he put into jungle atmospheres, cross hatching. Again, uh, just his 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 very crisp way of inking figures, and then an even crisper on backgrounds. He goes even tighter, and uh, he is rumored to have really pioneered the use of technical pens or pitiographs as well. But he did not ink figures and faces in the manner that most people thought back in the early eighties. I was one of those kids. I bought rapidiographs. I tried to imitate. The Terry Austin line work. Uh, George Perez, when he started inking himself, he told me, Rob, I'm trying to ink like Terry Austin. Again, when I have, I don't, I don't need to give you my 
assertion, my, my opinion, my interpretation that Dan Panosian and Scott Williams and these guys were looking to Terry early in their career. They told you, they would tell you, they would admit to it. Um, Terry Austin, one of my favorite jobs he's ever inked is over Frank Miller, a, a, a Daredevil issue, and then a what if issue with uh, Frank Miller, both Daredevil jobs. Uh, you will totally dig them. Terry, uh, you can't get a better brush with greatness. And the one thing I will say is that this man was able to do this on a monthly basis. He missed one job because he was pulled in away for another. It was one of the, uh, the, the Japan issues. I think it's issue 118. He did not ink, but he was right back there to wrap up the Japan saga. I can't believe he did this on a monthly basis. And sometimes he did two issues a month. I can't believe the dedication to um, just elevating the craft and the execution of the line work that he was capable of doing. It is unfathomable the level that he, uh, he worked at and his, his lines are being talked about and wondered to this day, his contribution to this X-Men book cannot be overpraised and to this run of titles that I'm sharing you today. Brush with greatness, Terry Austin, in my opinion, the greatest of all time. Sugar Rush. Sugar Rush is, is my favorite part of the Rob Topsy. It is my absolute favorite thing to discuss. And this is a sugar-coated, candy-coated affair, This these five issues that I shared with you. No less. I counted, so you didn't have to, 13 full splash pages. 13 full splash pages. That includes double-page spreads. Um, it, across five issues, that's, that's just shy of a full issue. These comics are 17 pages in length. We weren't at 20. We weren't at 22 pages. The magic that they are creating, they are giving it to you in 20, I'm sorry, in 17 page installments. And, and for, for John Byrne to be able to pull this off in the manner that he did, measuring out the plots and, and, and pushing the, the, the parameters with splash pages, double page splashes, especially the Soren issue, especially issue uh, 115 where they battle Soren and it's a splash, double page splash. Also 116 splash, double page splash, and then to fit in all the other action and yet it never feels cramped. But there are also a three quarter splash page with Kazar that I didn't count that would take it to 17 and a half. 17 and three quarters, basically. I mean, I mean, 13 and three quarters. Nearly an entire issue of this entire run is gorgeous splash pages and double page splash pages, which is part of the sugar rush, what we call the, what we used to call the jerk shot. Now we call it, because we're, we're a family show, the sugar rush. And, and besides the giant shots of the X-Men flying through the air, battling Sauron or, you know, gathering together at the, at the edge of the creek to face off against Sauron or on the cliff climbing to, to get over to see the Citadel double pager or the dramatic, like never to be topped shot of Magneto rising, putting his hand across the table. Like it's me, it's Magneto. I'm here to defeat you this three quarter figure shot. Uh, these are some of the most impactful shots in the history of the X-Men. And you get them all in these five, five issues. Uh, John would eventually back off slightly. He, he really is in ultimate splash page mode during this not only Magneto, Savage Land, but again, into the international adventure phase. But besides the, all the splashy stuff, the dedicated double-page splashes and splash pages, there's like the shot of Aurora that, the Aurora that I told you, that where, where she emerges from, from the tent with her, with her yellow you know, Savage Land bikini and, and, and torn cape. And I mean, just there are major sugar rush, sugar rush shot, shots throughout this. Wolverine being thrown fastball special, slicing up the pterodactyl, dropping him. Again, the three-quarter page Kazar just burned my memory forever. One of my favorite shots in the history of comics. Uh, Magneto battling the X-Men, tossing them th- you know, to and, th- and fro. The last page, it's, it's a quarter, it would be a half-page splash when he tells them, like, this is your future. This is an eye for an eye. 
you're going to suffer as I've suffered. That's a, a half page splash. This is maybe some of the most sugar rush that you've ever seen. It definitely inspired because I've talked endlessly to Todd McFarlane, Jim Lee, Art Adams, Eric Larson, Mark Silvestri, Wills Portacio. This is the stuff that we couldn't get enough of. This was pure cocaine on the page. No more sugar rush that, than you could ever possibly, uh, you know, subscribe. If you're a diabetic, proceed with these issues uh, with, with utmost caution because there is just sugar, sugar everywhere. This is the ultimate sugar rush experience. Legacy. What can I possibly say that I haven't already said over the course of so many podcasts that I have praised, especially season one, I jumped right in some of the greatest runs in the history of comics. This is one of them. And this is key. This without this fans don't get excited. They don't start chattering word of mouth. You know, this is the comic that you talked about with your friends. Endlessly, the Savage Land, Magneto, the Volcano, the journey, the international journey to get home the entire time Xavier thinks they're dead. It had emotion. It has pathos. It has heart. It has, it has action. It has Wolverine as a freaking cold-blooded murderer. But it was in wartime. Anyway, he's a murderer. It was a different take. These characters grew. They matured. This is the run that set the X-Men on the path to eventually overtake every other single comic book in the history of publishing at that time and become the breakout success from complete, you know, uh, loser to, to champion from, from last to first. I mean, this is the journey that brought this book to the top of the mountain. It stayed there for 12 years after, and then it went on to break, you know, record after record, paving the way for both myself as I said, Mark Silvestri, Wills Portacio, Jim Lee to step in and to add our magic. And we wanted to be there and we wanted to be a part of it so badly because of this run. This is to me the best Magneto standoff they've ever experienced. You can throw current characters in, you can throw, you know, you know, Gambit and Psylocke into the mix. It's not better than this. This battle uh, on the way when they attack him on the way to the volcano, landing in the volcano him defeating them, subduing them, and then breaking them out and all attacking them as a team is is like the most sinister, most momentous, most uh, powerful portrayal I, I had ever experienced with Magneto. And again, the Savage Land stuff, stuff is, uh, is just exciting, beautiful to look at, wonderful characterization, and historical, historical relevance to spare. The legacy of this book is unchallenged. It is one of the all-time champs if not the all-time champ and it was just an absolute blast to conduct a thorough rob topsy on this book i could not uh recommend it more highly i was very delicate in my slicing and dicing so that the the rob topsy you know that the body is still in good shape even though we have thoroughly you know flipped it to and fro examined it uh for your pleasure again check this out if you already haven't uh could not recommend it more highly One last thing I wanted to mention before we we literally wrap this up, zip up, zip up this body, is uh, it, it's really a sign of these these times, the, the 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 these two Rob Topsies, one a body of work from 1974, one four years later in 1978. I can't I can't stress to you enough all of these cliffhangers that I'm sharing with you. Uh, we didn't know it was coming three months in advance, six months in advance, like like comics comics announced today. Comics work so hard in, today to actually say, "Hey, there's going to be a real big secret in this in this next comic. Don't miss out to, to retailers." But when we were pulling these comics off the spinner rack, 
you just got that next issue blurb and there was no previews catalog. There certainly obviously was no internet. We were absent any sort of, you know, computer existence the way that we have now. This 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 technology did not exist. So so we would grab these comics and you'd be like, wait, what the X-Men are defeated and and they're restricted in chairs and Magneto is going to like, you know, uh, uh hold them hostage at at the bottom of this volcano. And oh my gosh, you know, who is this Sauron guy? Because I didn't know who Sauron was, who who just, you know, trans transformed himself by grabbing Storm's head. It's uh the, the art of the great cliffhanger was so uh helped, assisted, aided by the conditions of the time. You know, you'd get a little little blurb next issue, you know, the fire is ignited. What fire? What fire is ignited? I mean, you had to show up, you had to be there. But this this excitement, and that's why going monthly for something like the X-Men was so important to you because the cliffhangers really mattered. Uh, the page turns were always full of surprises, and we didn't get telegraphed in advance. And again, that is, you know, you can't you can't go back in time. It's it's not a whine. It's an ex, it's it's uh, it's an acknowledgement of something that was truly special and unique about those times that existed. Uh, you know, pretty much. Through most of the 80s. I mean, this really changed uh, late 80s, early 90s. But just wanted to acknowledge that. And and, and again, you know, get that out there as we prepare to zip up this body, preserve it, uh, put it back in the drawer and and get prepared for our very next Rob Topsy. Hey, if there's something, uh, a body that you want me to examine here on Rob Topsy, uh, let me know. Let me know in the feedback. I, I am open to suggestions. We are fresh into this. This is uh, only our second episode. I, I, I really, you know, again, really enjoyed both these bodies of work. This X Men body of work was was uh, so significant in so many ways, and I was excited to share that with you. Please follow me on social media. I am on Twitter at Robert Liefeld. I always joke I didn't get the whole name that got squatted pretty quickly, but at Robert, R-O-B-E-R-T-L-I-E-F-E-L-D. It has a blue check, which just tells you uh, that it's really me and not a phony. And I know the blue checks are kind of, I think you can can buy them now, (laughs) which is weird, but uh, it it just, it just identifies that, uh, that, you know, it's not a phony account, at least for now. On Instagram, watch my uh, photo dump of my life with my art and my food and my family. And that, 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 that's the easiest way I can wrap that up. Instagram, I got my name. I am at Rob Liefeld on Instagram. Follow me on Instagram. On Facebook, I have a group I'd love for you to partake in. We keep the conversations going. We talk about comics 24-7. We have art contests, uh, all really fun shares. It's called Rob Liefeld Marvel Extreme and Beyond. Myself or a gentleman named Terry Solo will click you through. That's how you know you're in the right Rob Liefeld group. Please join us at Rob Liefeld, Marvel Extreme and Beyond over on Facebook. I am on Whatnot at least twice a week. It's a collectible app uh, downloaded in the App Store. Follow me on Rob, uh, Rob Liefeld on Whatnot. Uh, my notifications will tell you when I go live with my shows. They generally, you know, it's safe to say Wednesdays and Saturdays, there's likely to be a show. It's a live stream. We, again, keep the conversation going. I have to because I'm, I'm the person talking the, the entire live stream. So join me on whatnot. I have uh, comic books, art, Funko Pops toys. It, it's an app that has that and so much more. It has uh, apparel, uh, sh- shoes, trading card games, uh, you know, role-playing games, 
sports cards, you name it, whatnot has it. You can probably find it in one of their many live streams going on all through the, throughout the day. When I go live, you'll find out if you get whatnot and find me uh, and follow me at Rob Lifo. I just want you to do good. That that's that's my my thing. I I uh, I really respond well to encouragement. I have my entire life, and I just want to. Uh, reach out to you guys and and wish you all the very best. I hope that you are, uh, you know, uh, navigating successfully uh, through through your lives. I, I Like I told tell my friends and family, sometimes I say, hey, look, you, you have a really good life. You're just waiting for a great life and it's going to come. It'll be there. You just got to, you just got to wait and, and, and keep moving and keep moving forward. And I am, I am wishing you all the momentum in the world and please come back. Uh, I'll be Rob. I'll be observing. I'll, I'll, I'll be giving something a Rob observation, or I'll or I'll be carving something up uh, with 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 a with a Rob Topsy of some sort. And I hope to see you. We will talk again real soon.